We're going to continue in our study in the book of John, so if you'll turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we started on that last week, got through the first nine verses, and we're going to get through another seven verses uh, tonight. Uh, We talked about uh, the man that was crippled next to the pools of Bethesda and how Jesus healed him. Uh, So we're going to continue on starting with verse 9 and moving forward. Um, I've entitled the teaching tonight, Oh, it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. So uh, starting with John chapter 5 verse 8, we looked at last week, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. So we're going to see in this text tonight uh, one of the big controversies that Jesus had with the Jewish religious leaders of the day. This subject of the Sabbath came up again and again and again. Uh, Through the book of John we'll see that and that's true of the other Gospels as well. But I want us to look at this very carefully because, because of this controversy. As we go through the book of John, if we set the standard for what this whole argument is based on here, then we'll know and we can apply that as we move through the book of John as well. What was, what is the Sabbath and how does it apply to us today? So starting again with verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. So we saw last week Jesus healed this man. This man showed great faith because when Jesus said this, he did the very thing that he said. He, he did stand up, he did pick up his bed, and he did walk away. The man, as we know from verse 9, was made well immediately. Just with the spoken word of Jesus, rise, take up your mat, take up your bed, and walk. Just by those words, uh, Jesus uh, healed this man. And we know that Last week, we kind of saw this, this, or the week before last, we saw the same thing with the um, nobleman's son in Cana. And Jesus healed him long distance. The son wasn't even there. But he said, go your way, your, your son is made well, your son has been healed. And so uh, we see G- Jesus healing. The difference between that one and this one is Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. Uh, the end of verse 9, and that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. So the guy gets healed, he picks up his bed, I'm sure he's excited, he bolts out of where the pools of Bethesda were, and on his way to where he was going, he runs into some Jewish religious leaders. And it was their job, it was their task to enforce the law. They were not only the law givers in the respect that they would explain the law to those that wanted to know, but they were the law keepers, if you will, as well, because they policed that. They were the ones that uh, made sure that everyone was adhering to the laws that had been set forth through the Ten Commandments and all the laws of the Old Testament. And they looked at that by the letter of the law. They wanted to make sure that everything that that you did in the course of your day, your week, that you were adhering to the laws set forth by God. 
So anyway, in verse 11, this man answers him and he said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. He's just giving him a breakdown on what took place. Hey, I was in this place and he said to me, You being made well, stand up, walk, pick up your mat, go your way. And then they ask him in verse 12, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? It's an interesting question. We talked about interesting questions last week. This one's really interesting because this man just said what? I've been healed. If it was me, I think I would have at least wanted to say healed from what? What, you know, what was your affliction? What were you healed from? And how, how did it happen that you were healed? And what was said? And you'd think that the focus or the interest would have been on the healing. Uh, but no. They stay firm to the law. They weren't concerned what happened. They only knew that he was carrying his bed and he shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. So they said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They were more interested in keeping the law and making sure this man kept the law. And who was it that broke the law by telling you that it was okay to do this? Verse 13, but the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So we have all these people around the pools of Bethesda. Uh, again, we have already established that this particular day, even though, it was, even though it was the Sabbath, it was also a feast that was going on. We don't know what feast for sure. The text doesn't indicate that to us. So anytime that there's a feast, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. So there would have been a lot of people there milling around everywhere. There would have been all these people that were sick and afflicted around the pools, hoping to get healed. And so Jesus, like he does many times throughout the Gospels, he does his work and then he just kind of disappears into the crowd, doesn't he? I love that. Uh, how he does it sometimes is amazing because he's just there and he's not there. Uh, but he's God, so he can pull that off. Uh, so we see that they're asking they're going to question this man about who it is that has healed him. But he didn't know who it was initially, for Jesus had left. But then we see in verse 14 that afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And stop there for a second. I think it's interesting that here's where this man went. He had been, had this affliction for 38 years. More than likely, he hadn't been to the temple for a long time. And so it doesn't say that he immediately went there, but I think that he did. I think that he met these Jews on his way to the temple. And they questioned him, why are you carrying your bed? Well, the man that healed me told me to carry my bed, you know, so that's what I'm doing. But I think he, he was on his way to the temple. I really believe that was the first place he was going. I think he was going there to give thanks. I really do. The man's already showed his faith by trusting in Jesus to be healed. And I think he's going to the temple to give thanks. And who does he meet there? Jesus. He sees Jesus at the temple. And they have the opportunity uh, to uh, talk again. Jesus says to him in verse 14, when he found him in the temple, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, this could mean several things. One, I think that we could in, see from the text that kind of indicates that maybe 
Sin was the cause of his affliction to start with. Maybe. We don't know for sure. But in, in the way that Jesus words this, you've been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That maybe sin was what caused this thing to come upon him to start with. We don't know what's sin. Uh, we have no idea. We don't even know that that's the case because what Jesus could be saying here too is a, uh, a salvation message in that go and sin no more. Because if you do continue in sin and you don't have a relationship with me, things are not going to turn out good in the end. It's a good word for all of us. Uh, so we don't know that if Jesus saying this was directly related to the sin that he had done in the past that maybe caused the affliction or if it was just more a longer term thing. Hey, have a relationship with me, sin no more. And, um, uh, you know, you have the, the promise of eternal life in that way. So um, you often wonder when you see a text like this, uh, was there more said? Was there more discussed? We're not to add to or take from God's word. We're, we're to take it for what it says. And that's all we have. So we'll let it go at that. But it says in verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Again, we don't know if he left the temple and went straight to the Jews to tell them or if they saw him again and he still got his bed under his arm <laughs> and so they stopped him again. We don't know what took place, but he did communicate with them that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now that's a name that they're probably familiar with at this point because there's been enough going on in Jerusalem, turning over the money changers' tables, we remember that. He did some miracles while he was there in Jerusalem. We don't have them recorded for us in John. Probably word traveled fast from up north that he healed the nobleman's son. The name of Jesus was starting to become well known uh, throughout the country. And in verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, this is the first time we see this in, in the book of John, but it's interesting why they want to persecute Jesus and why they want to kill him is because he's, not, he's doing these things on the Sabbath. They feel like he's not obeying the Sabbath. Well, lots of people weren't obeying the Sabbath, and they were corrected. I think that they looked at Jesus as someone who is very bold about this. He's uh, uh, very forward with it. He's healing people. They don't understand it. So they've got to find something to attack him with. And so the Sabbath seems to be the thing. So in these verses, and what we looked at last week, who are the people involved in this? So here we see in our text tonight, we've got Jesus, we've got the man that was healed, and we have these Jews, uh, obviously Pharisees or Sadducees. And that what's the main subject at hand in this text? Well, we would look at it, we would think the healing. I mean, that's, that's the miracle that took place. They see the main topic is the Sabbath. That's what uh, they're focusing on. So what happens in the text? This man, he's crippled for 38 years. Jesus heals him. Jesus tells him to pick up his bed and walk. The man leaves healed, carrying his bed. The man is confronted by the Jews uh, because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. The man says, the guy who healed me told me to do it because the Jews had just told him it's unlawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath. Seems like an odd rule, actually. Don't carry your bed on the Sabbath. 
So the Jews ask, who is this man? The healed man says, I don't know. Later, Jesus interacts with the man again in the temple. Jesus says, you've, made, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. The man leaves, tells the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. And then the Jews see Jesus as a problem that must be dealt with because he doesn't honor the Sabbath. So who's focusing on what here? Who's focusing on what things in this text? Jesus, I think, is focusing on healing the man and pointing out his sin. The man's focused on, hey, I've been healed. I have my life back. I can even go to the temple. And the Jews are focused on keeping the law and keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath. It's a serious point of contention between Jesus and the Jews. It's going to continue to be that way. What is the Sabbath? It's its origin. Why was it instituted by God in the first place? So we're going to look at a few uh, verses tonight, and I want you to follow me there. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Again, a portion of Scripture we're going to be familiar with. But just to establish us a little bit more in what the Sabbath is all about. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Rest, the word rest, is translated from the Hebrew word Shabbat. And Shabbat is the Hebrew word for Sabbath. So we have Sabbath, we have Shabbat, we have rest, and we can add to that seven. The number seven also means rest. It also means perfection, we know from the scripture. But the translation for all of those come across as the word rest. So when you see that in this particular passage, on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, the definition of this Hebrew word is to cease, to still, to, to rest. God finished his work. He rested from his creation work. His creation work was completed. His creation work was finished. He rested from it. Now, this doesn't mean that God was tired, that he was just wore out from creating everything. He wasn't tired. He had completed the work. He was resting from the work. The work had come to a stop. It had come to a halt. He was resting from it because it was done. It was completed. It's not a word for, in this case, being tired or wore out, you know, like we are at the end of a work day. We're tired. We need rest. For God, in this case, he was resting from the work. He wasn't doing the work any longer. Flip over to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. We're going to look at another passage here that uh, gives us a little more insight into this Sabbath, into this rest that we're talking about. Verse 14, we're going to see the, uh, the text is going to be talking about what we know as manna. Verse 14, and when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, 
what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. So this manna appears. God gives them manna from heaven, this little round bread-like substance. And on verse 26, if you look down at it, it says, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. There won't be any manna on the seventh day. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So they weren't to do any work on this seventh day to gather up this manna, to make their manicotti and their manna nut bread. <laughs> Those kind of things, right? The list could go on and on. I won't go there. They'd gather up this manna and they would use it. It was, it was food for them. But they weren't to gather it on the seventh day. God gave a double portion and they could gather up a double portion for that next day, which is going to be the Sabbath, to not do any work. Now this is interesting because we're in Exodus chapter 16. When was the Ten Commandments given? Exodus chapter 20. Turn there. We're going to see that that's when the Ten Commandments are given, and that's one of the commandments that we're going to see, the Fourth Commandment. Chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So now we see the command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So a lot going on with this Sabbath day. Back in Exodus 16, we see that there was this manna that was given from the Lord. It was given for those six days, double portion on the sixth day, but no work, no gathering would take place on that seventh, seventh day, the this, this Sabbath, this day of rest. So all of these scriptures that we've looked at so far, the account in Genesis, the account in Exodus 16, and now this account uh, with the command in Exodus chapter 20, uh, we see that this word, this seven, this Sabbath, it's all focused around this day of rest, this day of not doing work. The heart of the Sabbath, the meaning of Sabbath, is rest. That's its primary significance, rest. And we've got this command now that the Lord gives in the Ten Commandments. Number four, I, f I found it interesting. I really didn't see this till this week, but I thought it was interesting that... We know that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are man's relationship with God. And we know that the next six are man's relationship with man. 
But it's interesting that the break in between those is this. So we could equate, uh, again, the vision of our church here, our focus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So if we apply those first three, those first four commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we apply man's relationship with man, the next set, love your neighbor as yourself, right in between those is, is rest. Now stay with me on that. We'll come back to it. So the Old Testament law was to remember or to keep the Sabbath day of rest and keep it holy. And this continues right up to the time of Jesus as the command, the law to be kept, to be obeyed by the Jews. And we see that over time, they added their own set of requirements on how to do it as well. What did the Jews teach and enforce regarding the Sabbath day in addition to what we see here? And, and they still do it to this day. There's these, what are called the 39 laws of the Sabbath, which I have right here. This list. You can get this off the internet because it's still in effect today. These 39 laws, things not to do on the Sabbath. And it even goes deeper than that because within these 39 things, there's so many different ways that it could be done. So it just adds to the list. No sewing. Not sowing, but sowing. No sowing either, actually. No plowing, no reaping, no binding of the sheaves, no threshing, no winnowing, no selecting, no grinding, no sifting, kneading, or baking. All of that stuff would have to be done the day before. So if they picked up the manna and they want to make their manna nut bread, they've got to prepare everything the day before. There's no shearing of wool. No cleaning, no combing. Actually, for some of us, the cleaning thing, kind of like, amen to that, you know. Hey, I need my day off, right, wives? I need my day, I, don't have, I can't do any cleaning today, hon. Sabbath, can't do it. No combing, no dyeing. Combing's not a problem for me. We never break that one. Uh, no spinning. Stretching the threads, making loops, weaving threads, separating the threads. Tying a knot, untying a knot. Sewing, tearing. You kind of wonder, does that mean I have to put my shoes on the day before and tie my shoes that day? Because, I, you know, I don't know how you pull some of these off. Trapping, slaughtering, skinning, salting, tanning, scraping, cutting, anything that you would do to prepare a beast for food. No writing or erasing. No building up or breaking down. No extinguishing a fire. That one I struggle with. <laughs> because it just seems like, yes, but it, the temple's on fire, you know. Literally it was later on, but uh, kindling a fire. You can't even build a fire. No striking a hammer blow. I don't, I'm not sure why that one came up. And then last in this whole list is carrying no carrying anything, I guess. You can't be carrying anything. It's a, it's a long list. It's a lot to remember, a lot to live up to. To me, it sounds like a lot of work to not do any work. Really, doesn't it? The, the, the day before the Sabbath, 
you, you would need a day of rest <laughs> after the sixth day because all the things you have to do to prepare for the Sabbath day, wouldn't you? So that's where they were. They, the Jews, they were in a place of interpreting the law, enforcing the law. It was all about the law. And then comes Jesus. Jesus would challenge them on the true meaning of the Sabbath. He would rock their world regarding the Sabbath. What did Jesus teach about the Sabbath? The first mention of Jesus and the Sabbath is in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12. Turn there if you would. Matthew chapter 12. I don't normally like to make you turn this much, but I, I want you to follow along with these scriptures tonight. Matthew chapter 12. We're slowly working our way back to John, you can see. Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 1, we see this account of the first time this whole Sabbath argument comes up with Jesus and, and the Jews. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. They're probably breaking who knows how many rules already on the Sabbath by doing this, right? And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now there's two things I want us to look at right there in verse 6 and in verse 8. They're talking to Jesus here. They're talking to God. Jesus is God. So they're talking to the very person that instituted the Sabbath to start with and trying to school him on what it means and what you have to do. It's almost humorous to look at it. You have to wonder sometimes how Jesus responded to that. Well, many times the text shows us he gives it straight up to him so many times. But I just have to think sometimes he'd have to just kind of laugh to himself or chuckle to himself, you know. I know what it means. <laughs> I'm God, you know. But here in this case, he says, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. If you look back in the Old Testament and you study the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple in these days, we know as we study through that, Jesus was everything that had to do with the tabernacle. As you walk through the tabernacle, if you do a study on that, the symbolism there for Jesus himself is just deep. And that continued through the temple. Jesus is saying, I am greater than the temple. Later in, in the book of John, he talks about himself being the high priest. He is the high priest of all high priests. He's the temple. And then in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
I don't, in my Bible, if I flip the page, it goes to another subject matter. But I could see how the Pharisees would not be happy right now. You're giving me, you're trying to school me on the Sabbath? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa, that was deep because he just claimed to be who? God. They didn't like that either, as we'll see. So Jesus' authority is greater than the temple and the ceremonial laws that have to do with the temple. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God himself. Jesus has authority that the humans, humans don't have. He, he's the creator. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we saw that when we were in John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus, Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus' next response, there in verse 8, For the Son of Man is, even, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, what does this mean? Does it mean that the Sabbath law is never to be broken? Well, we've just seen that Jesus and his disciples were doing what? They were breaking the Sabbath law. We also discovered that the Israelites were permitted to break that law in favor of the ceremonial laws that they had going on. So maybe to better understand this concept of Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, let's, let's just look at an illustration. Uh, let's pretend that any one of us me, in this case, <laughs> bought a house. I just bought this house. Who, who is the Lord of this house? Who is the master of that house? Master of the house would be the owner of the house. It's not the one that just moved out of the house. It's not the one who lives next door. It's the master of that house. It's me. I bought the house. I paid for it. The deed's in my name. It's my house. And being Lord of my house, what do I have the authority to do in that house? Can I change the color of the paint on the walls? Yes, with Chris's approval. I could do that. Can I make a hole in the ceiling? Yes, I could do that. Can I enlarge the bedroom, enlarge the family room? Yes, as long as I'm meeting city codes and all that. Yes, I can do that because it's, it's my house. I have authority over my house because it's legally mine. No one can come into my house and start painting the walls a different color unless I give them permission to do that. Being the Lord and master of my house, I have full authority over my house. I can do with it as I please. So Jesus says that he is Lord, master of the Sabbath. What does that mean? He's the one that has authority over the Sabbath. He had the deed, if you will, over the Sabbath. It's his. He's the creator. He's the one that rested on the seventh day. He's the one that gave the Ten Commandments. He can do as he wishes with the Sabbath. It's his. So the accusation of the Pharisees that Jesus and his disciples are breaking the Sabbath law, is that legitimate? Not at all. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He was breaking the Sabbath laws that they had set up, instituted by God initially, but he had the authority to do that. He's the master, the Lord of the Sabbath. How can we as created beings complain about what he, the creator, is doing with something that's legitimately his? We, we, we can't do that, can we? It belongs to God, so we can't complain about what he is doing with it. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We know that Jesus came to fulfill the law completely. He fulfilled it to perfection. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus come to do that? Because we couldn't, could we? We couldn't keep the righteous requirement of the law. So Jesus came to fulfill the law to perfection for us on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? Those three words that just ring out. It is finished. It is finished. What was finished? All that was necessary. He finished everything that was necessary to bring us into fellowship, into communion with the Lord by dying on the cross for our sins. The righteous requirement of the law, the law that God set up, was met. It was complete. It is complete. It was fulfilled. It is fulfilled. It was finished. It is finished in Jesus Christ. Now, every other religion or cult bases its teaching on what you or I must do. But only New Testament Christianity bases its belief system on not what remains to be done, but what he has already done, what he's done. All that was required by God for us to be righteous before him was fulfilled by Christ on the cross. He was the final sacrifice for our sin. He paid the final penalty for our sin. He met the righteous requirement for us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. One more scripture we're going to look at here together. Hebrews chapter 10, clear in the back by just before the book of James. And we're going to see what it has to say here about the law. Most biblical scholars believe that Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. We don't have definitive proof of that, but most believe that he, he did. And in chapter 10, starting at verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continuously year by year make those who approach perfect. So back in the tabernacle, we remember God instituted by law his sacrifices that had to be in place. And these sacrifices were in place for the sin of the people. And it says in this text that it's the shadow of things to come. It's not the actual thing that's going to be required or take place. It's basically a template or a shadow of the things to come. Verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins Every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Jesus said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice, offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. 
which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we see in this text that Christ is the substitutionary sacrifice for us, but also in place of those Old Testament sacrifices that had to take place for sin. We see that, don't we? Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What did Christ say on the cross? It is finished. He was that final sacrifice. All the sacrifices that had been required by law up to that point were no longer necessary because the final sacrifice had been made. And once that sacrifice had been made, once Christ had been resurrected from the dead, once his work was finished here on earth, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down to do what? To rest. The work was completed in the same way that creation was done and rested on the seventh day when Christ had completed that sacrifice. He sat down. He rested. The work was completed. The work was done. Animal sacrifices were no longer necessary. Trying to work to keep the law was no longer necessary because he kept the law for us, didn't he? We know we could not fulfill the law. We couldn't do it. That's why a sacrifice needed to come for us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus talks about this yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Anytime two animals are yoked together, they typically don't put two seasoned oxen together. They don't yoke them together because then you have two heads or two leads and no one to follow, no one to learn from. They might not want to go in the same direction. So what they normally do is take, take a young ox and yoke him with an older ox so that older ox can basically teach him in which way to go. He can train him up. He's going to be stronger for one thing, so you will go in this direction. So they team that one that knows up with the one that does not know so that they can be taught. The relationship works the same with, with us and with Christ. As we come alongside, we walk with the Lord, the Lord teaches us, shows us the direction in which to go. So he says this, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Perfect rest. Fulfilled rest. Complete rest. Finished 
rest. It's found in him and in him only. In him. It's not work. It's not a performance. It's position in him, in Christ. It's only where true rest can be found. Rest is no longer found in keeping the Sabbath. Rest is a position, not a day. Our position is in Christ. Now, before I get much farther with that, I know that there's going to be some of us, even myself, as I look through this, like, wow, so are you saying that the Sabbath doesn't apply anymore? Are you saying that we no longer need to keep the Sabbath day holy, Saturday, or is it Sunday? A lot of dispute about that, isn't there? Should it be on Saturday? Should it be on Sunday? We know the Seventh-day Adventists, they say it's Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Well, somewhere in church history, it got moved to Sunday, the first day of the week. Did it? No, it didn't. The Sabbath is still that seventh day, Saturday. But because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the early church started meeting together on the first day of the week. Did that mean that they had done away with the Sabbath? No, not at all. Gang, for the, the thing for us to remember is what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is for rest. God knows us. He knows what we go through in the course of our week, and he knows that we need that day of rest. So he grants that to us. He tells us this is a healthy thing for you. God wants us to use that time to focus on him, that time to rest in the Lord, that time to be refreshed in the Lord, to spend time with the Lord. You know, if we're really using it for anything else, it's really not rest. And I know you might be thinking, how do you do that? We've got too much going on in our lives to set aside a whole day to do nothing but just be before the Lord. It does sound refreshing, doesn't it? It sounds like it was something that we did, we would thoroughly enjoy if we could stop our busyness long enough to accomplish that. In our day and age, we're just very busy. We find it very difficult with all the things that we have to do at work, keeping up a home, all these things to find that day of rest. But it doesn't just mean that day. Rest is a position, not just a day, our position in Christ. Romans 14.5 says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. What is that saying? Basically, Paul is writing there, pick a day. It doesn't have to be Saturday. It doesn't have to be Sunday. Pick a day to have that day of rest with the Lord, whatever day that is. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. You see, true rest in God is found in Christ every day. The focus isn't to be on Saturday. It isn't supposed to be on Sunday. The focus is supposed to be on the Savior. Not on Saturday, not on Sunday, but the Savior. And true rest is not what or when we observe it, but on who we observe. 
We cannot find rest in our work or our labor. We, we find it in his completed work in us, for us and in us. We know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of what? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is a good and healthy discipline for us to set aside a day of the week for us to focus on the Lord. Traditionally, that's been Sundays. It's not about a day. It's about who we're focused on when we're doing it for worship together with the Lord. Like I said, it's a good practice to have a day of rest physically and spiritually with, with a focus, with an emphasis on the Lord. But remember that to truly rest in Him would be to set aside every day of the week to rest in Him. That should be a lifestyle for us. Resting in Christ, why? Because the work is done. He completed the work. He did what was necessary for that righteous requirement that God required so we don't have to work for that. It's not by works. It's by His grace. We can rest in that. We don't have to get all gripped about it. Oh, i got to go do something for the Lord. The Lord would say to that probably, no, you don't. Just spend time with me. Yes, I love it when you serve me, but I want you to just to spend time with me, to just rest in me and the work that I've already done on your behalf. If I find myself focusing on the Lord only on Saturday or if I find myself focusing on the Lord only on Sunday... And if I'm not focusing on Him every other day of the week, I'm just not truly resting in Him. I'm trying to observe the law. (laughs) I'm trying to live up to that righteous requirement that God requires. And we can't do that. We need to be in a place where we rest in Him continually because of the work that He's done. The focus is not on the day, but on the Savior. It's an everyday focus, an everyday dependency, an everyday rest, resting in him. In Christ, the Sabbath is every day. It's a day of rest, and we're in Christ every day. He fulfilled everything required by the law. It's not work all week and rest on Saturday, it's resting in him the whole week. We can trust in him, we can rest in him. He is our Sabbath rest. Amen.